Today's sermon text will be Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, our Paul said to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through true love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the law that you will keep, you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you bear the penalty, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In this case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I want to thank you for your prayers, um, uh, for the surgery, and uh, I feel a ton better. And the past few months in the fall, it was a lot of pain in the shoulder and arm, and, um, and yeah, it's been relieved. So thank you very much. I, um, they, they fused these two discs and they separated them. And I don't know if you can tell, I think I'm a bit taller. Uh, I asked the doctor, am I taller? And he said, maybe a centimeter. And um, at one point, you know, he said, your voice may change. And so I was kind of hoping for a Barry White kind of baritone. I got so much to give, that 74 hit. If you're born after 80, you wouldn't know this. Carol was afraid I was going to go in the Mickey Mouse direction, so I'm just thankful that it all came out okay. But it's good to be back, and it's good to be finishing up uh, Galatians with you. Remember Galatians, just to remind you, we stopped this it really in December of last year. Galatians is about Paul trying to get a church back on track to get them rightly aligned. Uh, they were making a very bad exchange. Listen, uh, no, none of us want to go into the market when it's high and sell low. None of us want to go into you know, giving something of great value and getting something of lesser value. You don't want to make bad exchanges, and they were doing this. Now, remember, Paul planted the church in Galatia, and he planted this church, and they were Gentiles. They were idolaters. They were wrapped up in passions of the flesh, and they turned by faith, and they believed in Christ, and they were free. They were forgiven overjoyed. And what happened soon after was these Judaizers, these teachers from Jerusalem, these teachers of the law, came in and said, hey, it's great to have faith in Messiah, but you also need to begin picking up these Jewish practices that we follow, circumcision, dietary laws, honor the Sabbath. 
And they're beginning to layer law back onto grace. And, and Paul's saying, no, this is a bad exchange. This is like being freed from Egypt, from slavery, and you're turning back to go once you've been freed. Remember now, the, the, what he's been arguing in Galatians up to this point is that the people of God have been created by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. It's not through lineage to Abraham, and it's not through obedience to law, but it's through faith in a Son that God has sent to save us, and that, by the power of the Spirit, draws us into the community of faith. They were making a terrible exchange, one that we're often confronted with making. So here's what I want to do. In these, in these 12 verses in this fifth chapter, I want to look first. He calls us to freedom, and I want to try to understand what does it mean to stand firm in freedom, and then he, he warns us, point two would be, he warns us about threats that will come to take away our freedom, the freedom that we have in the gospel. And then last, because a lot of people think, well, hold on now, if you just tell everybody that they're free in Christ, they'll do whatever they want. He says, no, 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 no. It, 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 the third point will be, here's how you live in the light of your freedom. It's not a license. It's really a license for joy. So first, look with me at verse 1. In verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So he's telling them, moving to chapter 5, to kind of the ethical portion of the book, he's saying, he's saying you've been set free. He says, For freedom Christ has set you free. So the gospel, believing the gospel, is kind of a liberation, an emancipation. There's a freedom that comes to us. In fact, literally in Greek, it is simply this, for freedom Christ freed you. So both the noun and the verb are freedom. He wants us to be free in the gospel. Now, of course, it begs the question, what kind of freedom is freedom? I don't think it's political freedom here. I don't think he's saying that this is the freedom to vote or to assemble or to to freedom of speech. I don't think it's an economic freedom that you can do anything you want with your money, that you just spend it any way you want without God giving any wisdom on that. I don't think it's a social freedom. I don't think he's saying destroy social structures. Hey, you want to remake the family? You want to remake marriage? Go ahead and have at it. I don't think it's any of those freedoms, and I don't think it's a personal freedom as if we have autonomy, just independence from every single person. Many of you have read the book Habits of the Heart by Robert Bell, it's a sociologist, and he writes these words, freedom is perhaps the most important, deeply held American value. And yet this freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having others' values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon them. You know, that American freedom can kind of move into a don't tread on me kind of thing. I don't think he's speaking about that. When he says that for freedom, Christ has set you free, I think what Paul's saying is, we have a freedom now from the weight and the burden of our sin and our guilt and our shame. When you look back over your life and you see all the dead skeletons, you have a freedom from those sticking with you forever. And there's a freedom from the tyranny of never being able to do enough. You know how you measure yourself always with God? and Have I done enough? And have I prayed enough? And have I read enough? Have I served enough? Have I given enough? And, and you just go, wait, the tyranny of that has been broken. You're free from that. You're free from the curse of the law. You're free from the judgment of God. You're free from the wrath of God. You're free from the fear of death. This is what he's saying that we have. He's saying, stand firm in this freedom. Notice he says the same thing in the opposite in the second half of verse 1. 
He says, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The idea of slavery here isn't historical slavery per se. It's more of that yoke, that, that burden that is placed on two oxen as it plows a field. He's saying, don't submit again to rules as a means of approaching God. So if you relate to God based upon your past performance, that's a burden. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he rebuked the Pharisees. He says, they tie heavy loads on you and burden you. In fact, James said the same thing in Acts 15. He likens trying to live before God according to a law, whether a law from the Old Testament or a law that you've established. Uh, he says it's a yoke. Don't, when James, Gentiles are starting to come into the church, and James says, don't put the yoke on them that our forefathers haven't been able to bear. So what he's saying here is stand firm in the freedom. And, and by the way, you need to engage this, right? This is a call to arms. This is a call to resist. He's saying you have to be engaged. You have to, stand, you have to, you have to work to walk in the freedom that the gospel gives you. So let me just ask you, to what degree of freedom do you experience? I mean, to, to what degree do you feel, I am forgiven of God? I am reconciled to God. I had a horrible week last week, but I'm still a son of God. I mean, to what degree do you have that freedom? To what degree do, do you have the sense of, no, I can boldly walk right into him after sinning massively because he's still my father and he still sent his son to die for my sins. Or is your relationship to God, is it more of a he loves me, he loves me not? He loves me, he loves me not. Uh, maybe you struggle more, that you feel more burdened uh, by the fact that you, know, you have these repeated failures. You're not sure if you're really free before God. You're not completely convinced that God isn't looking at you and, and kind of giving you a progress report. You're really doing bad right now, so you better keep your distance from me because I can really lose my temper quickly. Do you feel that despair of never measuring up? See, this is what many of us speak to. We have this constant weight. We haven't done enough. And what Paul's saying is, if you've come by faith in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you are forgiven. You're not forgiven if you do this and that, and if you perform at this level or that level. You know, the freedom that he is telling us about, you know is not free. I mean, it, it just isn't, it isn't gratis. Jesus Christ has earned for us this freedom. I mean, by his coming in the flesh, by his bearing the curse of our sin, by his suffering the wrath of God, by his living a perfect life with which he can bring to the Father for us. That's what's earned us forgiveness and acceptance and favor with God. Are you still weighed down by guilt? And do you still... Now, I'm not talking about, let's say, you, you move quickly and you give way, you move in pornography or anger or bitterness, unforgiveness. You feel the conviction of God's spirit. That's appropriate and right. And then that conviction is meant you to, it's drawing you to the Father and saying, God, forgive me. You've paid for that sin. I walked in it willingly. Please forgive me. And then he forgives you and your relationship is, is there. It's, you're still the son. You're still a daughter. 
You know, th- th- there should be that freedom of a burden being lifted. You know, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, so I think it's probably one of the most, I don't know, for hundreds of years, it was the most read book outside the Bible. I think it's still the second most published book. And in this, it's an allegory of the Christian life, and Christian, who's the main character, uh, Christian is seen as going through the gate, the narrow gate. And, and, and there's really scholarly debate about this. I was just reading about it this morning. I didn't even know this, but uh, the, the, the going through the narrow gate is where most scholars think he was actually saved because he came to Christ. Christ saves. Doctrine doesn't save Christ Jesus saved. He goes through the gate, but then, but then later he goes before the cross, and it's in the cross that the burden is removed, and scholars try to figure out what's going on. When he went through the gate, we thought he was saved, but he still has the burden, and then he goes to the cross, and the burden falls off. Scholars say, no, what he was saying was that that sense, when you see the cross and you see Christ and all that he's done, then you realize, I am forgiven, and boom, the burden falls off, and now I'm free. And and so what Paul's saying is stand firm in this freedom. I hope you know this freedom. Uh, Particularly for you, if you're a Christian here, if you've come to faith in Christ, looking at the cross, that's what produces a freedom from that psychological guilt and weight that we carry with us. If you're not a Christian, the burden is yours to bear. Nobody can out... We can... Your friends may try to say, well, you didn't mean harm by that. And you, you didn't intend them to be that hurt. But at the end of the day, we are all sinners and we need a Savior. So Paul's calling us to stand firm in freedom. But notice what he does secondly. This is a challenged truth in the church today. And, and Paul's going to explain what the threats are to the freedom. He says stand firm because the tendency is we can forfeit the freedom. Now, can we forfeit the freedom or forfeit the enjoyment of the freedom? Well, let's look, because he says there's really two things. There's false teaching and false teachers that will seek to steal your freedom and that will steal your enjoyment of the freedom. Look with me at 2 through 4. He says in 2 through 4, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. This is incredible. Paul's trying to warn us. He's saying, listen, you can't have it both ways. You know, remember now these Judaizers, these Jewish teachers from Jerusalem had come and they're, they're beginning to spy out this ongoing work of this proclaimed Jewish Messiah. And so they came and they would say, yes, you need to have faith in the Jewish Messiah. Plus, you need to be circumcised. I mean, if you want to be part of God's people, if you want to be part of that unique people that call God as Father, you need to be circumcised. That is the sign, the seal of the covenant of Abraham, and you need to undergo circumcision. So it's faith in Christ plus circumcision. So they're adding a layer to faith in Christ. They're adding a requirement. You need to do this plus this. And Paul is saying to them, this is legalism. Any addition, any addition. Now, remember when he says, if you accept circumcision. To accept circumcision is to believe that you need to do this work to add to the gospel. 
to accept circumcision is to say, yeah, I need to believe in Jesus, but you know what? You also ought to be reading this version of the Bible. You ought to be living this way. You ought to be avoiding these sins, and you ought to be doing all these different things. You know, the church dealt with this earlier. In chapter 15, James says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what, what they're saying is, hey, listen, Jesus began a good work, but Moses, he's got to complete it. So believe in Jesus, but you also got to do what Moses said. Now, now this, is, this is the essence of legalism. Legalism is adding anything to what Jesus has already done. They may be good things. They really may be good things for you. But they can't be added in terms of how we approach God and see ourselves before God. Paul shows us what the costs are. Look at what he says there in 2 to 4. He gives us three warnings. He says, number one, he says, if you accept circumcision, uh, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no value to you. His work will benefit you nil. No advantage to you. In fact, we already read that in chapter 2, 21. We read, if righteousness, you know, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. William Perkins was a Puritan back in the 17th century, actually 16th century, and he said this, Christ is either a perfect Savior or he's no Savior. So it's not one or the other. He's either the perfect Savior or he's no Savior. So Christ will be no advantage to you if you find yourself thinking, well, I do believe in Jesus, and, but I'll also be doing the, he will be no advantage to you. But secondly, Paul says, if you accept circumcision, you, you're obligated to keep the whole law. So let's make this really clear. If you want to come to Christ if you want to come to the Father with faith in Christ and you think other things are necessary, you better do them all. Remember, to the Jewish mind, the law was not 613 commands that you better do as many as you can. Hopefully the neater will push over into majority. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you've got to do them all, all of them, perfectly. There's one law, there's one God, there's one system. So if you want to come to God by virtue of the law, do them all. Of course, we read this back in chapter 3 of Galatians. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. You've got to do them. So if you, come to, if you come to God in the name of Jesus with law, you've got to do all the law. And, and then third, look at what he says. He says, you who are justified, you who seek to be justified by the law, he says, you're severed from Christ and you fall from grace. But I don't know how much clear he can be. You're severed from Christ, the branch torn off the tree. You're severed from him. It's not one of either way. It's, it's not, I'm going to trust in Christ and I'm going to trust in my works. You either trust in Christ or you trust in your works. Charles Spurgeon said, if salvation is by grace, then it's not of works. If salvation is by works, then it's not of grace. It's one or the other. The two mixed together like oil and water. So he's saying to us simply, the threat to freedom is the belief that I need to believe and follow whatever it can be from whatever church you've been to or whatever your mind has developed that have been good things for you. And it may be fine to do those things, but they don't add to anything in terms of the event of bringing you to God. 
They may be helpful for you in sanctification. They might not be helpful for somebody else. But the point of it is they don't reconcile. They don't justify you before God. But he moves from false teaching to false teachers. Look with me at 7 to 12. At 7 to 12, he says, you were running well. So there they were. They were running well. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, that is the teaching from these false teachers, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Uh, Many people think that they were saying, well, Paul is really, we're preaching what Paul preached. And Paul's saying, no, they're not. If they were, then I wouldn't still be being persecuted. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So so what is he saying here? He's not saying false teaching is the issue. It's also the false teachers. They were running well. I mean, they were maturing. They were growing in the faith. And and then these teachers came among them and said, well, you've got to be doing these things as well. And they started to veer off the path. Now, veering off the path, this idea of pursuing, well, I've got to believe and I've got to do these various things. You know, these false teachers are like leaven. You know, leaven's a metaphor in Scripture. It's usually used for sin or it's used for false teaching. The point of it is that it doesn't take a lot of leaven to ruin the whole lump. And what Paul's saying is a little bit of, this te- a little bit of these teachers, they're going to ruin the whole lump. You know, th- this idea that if you just add to the work of Christ, it's going to ruin the whole gospel, is what he's saying. A little bit of leaven. In other words, if I go from thinking, okay, the things I'm doing to honor God, I'm doing those because I love God. If I just shift slightly and say, well, I'm doing those so that God will love me. Okay, notice the shift. I'm doing those because I love God and I'm grateful for all of his saving purposes. Versus, no, I'm doing those so he might love me more. That slight shift that move towards self-reliance, right away, Christ has no advantage to you. You've been severed. And, and, and he talks about this leaven. See, here's the problem. He says that if you believe this, the, the offense of the cross has been removed. Let me explain that. If, if you feel that what you do, if your performance is helping you before God, then implicitly you're saying the cross is not enough. And what the cross is proclaiming to us is no one here is adequate to add to or to increase the likelihood of us being accepted by God. The cross is kind of a declaration. You all, all of us, are absolutely without hope except in one who has hung on that tree to save us. If we start adding things to his work, it implies that we have something to add to it, and we don't. So he warns us here, he calls us to stand firm in the freedom. What threatens us standing firm is simply this, false teaching and false teachers, the adding to the work of Christ. Now, let me just ask you a question. How tempted are you to return to this yoke of slavery? You you may think I'm not. I, I do want to point out something unique about what Paul was saying. Paul wasn't concerned they were going back into idolatry. These were Gentiles, they weren't Jews. So they were Gentiles who were wrapped up in slavery, They were worshiping gods of this world. They were pursuing the passions of their flesh. When Paul says, look at him back at one, he says, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That's really an important word again. 
Oh, what's he saying? Does he think they're going to go back into paganism? They're going to pursue worshiping idols? No, he says don't go back again into the yoke of slavery, meaning legalism. So what's he saying here? He's saying hedonism and legalism are the same thing. They're both enslaving. I can be enslaved to the passions of my body, and I can pursue all the gods of this world and seek all the pleasure I want, and I'm enslaved to it. I can be equally enslaved to laws and rules and regulations and have-tos and should-haves as a means of approaching God. He's saying it's the same slavery, different objects. One's rebellious, one's religious, one's hedonist, one's moralist. It's the same thing. We may need to repent of our religion. We may need to repent of, I have believed in Jesus, but I've always trusted in these things so that God would love me. What he's saying is, you need to repent of that. But then as I was looking and thinking about this, I was like, why are we so attracted to legalism? Why do we love to add layers to the gospel? Why can't we just walk in the freedom and really think I am forgiven by God? I've got a basement of skeletons. They've all been cleaned away. The basement's clean. Why can't we live that way? I, I, I think we like the rules. We like the rules because it lets me measure myself against myself. I'm doing better. I used to be a drinker, skirt chaser, and now I don't do those things anymore, so I'm better. And, and somehow I feel like I've moved up the ladder. I think, too, we love legalism because it helps measure us against other people. I mean, I'm surely better than the drunk or the, or, or the adulterer. I'm better than the thief or the liar. You remember the parable in Luke 18 where Jesus says, hey, there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. And what's the Pharisee? The Pharisee is the guy with the white hat, tax collector is the bum. And so the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I fast, I pray, I give a tenth of, you know, I tithe. And we love to compare ourselves. But I think there's one other reason we love legalism. We actually are scared of a gospel of absolute free grace. We, we think people are going to run away with it. They're going to just go into license and licentiousness, and they're going to run away with it. We better put fences around this gospel of grace. We better say, well, yeah, it is free, it is, but you've got to do these things as if we're going to somehow protect this gospel. And the gospel doesn't need our protecting. Do you understand the threat of you and I walking in this Christian belief system with layers? Do you get it? And it's not just foolish. I mean, any of us would say it's stupid to go back into slavery once you've been emancipated. Uh, but it's fatal. It's fatal. Christ would be no advantage to you. You're severed. You've fallen from grace. In fact, let me show you how much Paul thinks of this as a danger. He says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Now, this explanation will be a, modestly a bit uncomfortable for me. But let me explain it to you. To emasculate themselves. What's he saying here? He's saying the knife with which they want to use to circumcise you, I want them to castrate themselves. Those are fighting words. I mean, I mean, those, that's incredible. Paul's saying, I want them to cut themselves because of the harm they're bringing to the church. That's how strongly he feels about layering on to the gospel. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? I don't think the text is moving in that direction. You see in verse 10, he says, I am convinced that you will hold no other view. I'm convinced of it. 
So Paul's not worried about that. I think what he's doing is we see here the value of warnings in the Scripture. The Scriptures are giving us warnings so that we continue to walk along the narrow road. The the warnings in Scripture are for our good. Do you see warnings that way? I mean, when you hear a warning from the leadership or you hear a warning from a friend, do you see it? That, you know, we live in a very empathetic culture. We live in a culture where we're easily offended. People have high degrees of sensitivity and warnings or admonishments. You know, Paul calling it. Remember now earlier in chapter 2, you stupid Galatians? It says in chapter 3, who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Warnings are necessary. Now, I understand that many times the church and friends perhaps have warned us with a degree of severity and perhaps highly critical, and it has deeply wounded us. But, but bad uses of admonition don't disqualify the proper use of admonition. And I think here we have this call that we want to be open to one another. Do you see me layering the gospel? Do you see me finding my hope in the things that I do? Do you see me measuring myself based upon my performance and not what Christ has done? And then also in this warning here, you see that they have to persevere. You have to persevere. That's the warning, right? They started out well. It doesn't mean they finished well. He says, you were running so well. So if you equate Christianity to a foot race, they were really doing it. They were really keeping up a strong pace. But boom, they went off rail. They went off rail from these false teachings and false teachers. So we need to persevere. This is why we need each other. This is why, particularly as our culture continues to kind of decline, we're going to need each other in far deeper ways. Not just our, our subgroups, but the church in its entirety we will need. You know, when you look at the book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at in 2023, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is really just one sermon. It's a sermon to the church who is suffering that they would persevere. And that's why it always says, let us hold fast to the confession. Let us encourage one another. Let us approach the throne. It's let us, let us, let us. It's all these calls of communal engagement that we need one another to persevere. We are pilgrims in this world traveling together. We need each other, and we don't want to go off rail. We want to finish well. So here's what you have. You have Paul calling us to a freedom, and then he warns us of the threats to that freedom. To what degree are you looking at the badge of medals of holiness as a means of approaching God? To what degree are you looking to the other things that you do as somehow putting you in better sonship or daughtership with God. Because what Paul's saying, Christ has set us free, so be free indeed. But what do we do? Maybe right now you're thinking, okay, I get it. I get the call to freedom, and I get the threat. But if you give me all this freedom with the gospel, you know, if you kind of leave the candy bag open with kids and no parents around, I mean, they're going to eat themselves sick. You can't handle that kind of freedom. Well, notice what he does here. He calls us to live a life of freedom. Let me jump back with you back to 5 and 6. Look in 5 and 6. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, let me, I, I need you to gird up your minds with me because this to me is like the Christian manifesto. If you were to say, hey, give me two verses on what it means to live like a Christian filled with the Spirit in a fallen world, this is it right here. This is it. Notice what he says. 
Because for those of us who think a gospel of freedom means do whatever you want, he's giving correction here. He's saying, for through the Spirit. Now, just reading that, I want to remind you that through the Spirit means that when Jesus Christ ascended and the Spirit came, he established a new order. So for those of us who have come to God through faith in Christ, we have been given the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is inaugurating. That means it's starting a new age. So now we live now as children of God. Are we children? Are we men and women of this world? Yes, we are. We still have flesh and blood. But we're part of an eternal kingdom. We've been filled with God's Spirit. We've been made new. We've been made into the people of God. This is what we call the overlapping of the ages. We are living now in a way that we will never die. We'll never be separated from God. You do realize that. For the Christian here, this is you've got to get your mind around this. The Christian understands that now that God's Spirit has come, he's gathering up his people, and he's inaugurating a new age. This is why Paul says, neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else created, neither height nor depth, will be able to separate you from God's love. There's nothing. Your own sin can't separate you from God because it's been born by Christ. So we're now part of a new creation. We've been filled with the Spirit who now enables us to live differently. The Spirit convicts us. It illuminates us. It leads us, circumstantially guiding us, kind of admonishing us. So through the Spirit, by faith, we live by faith now. We don't live for the things of this world. We don't live driven by the, the cultural changes, the governmental. We live by faith, not by law. We come to God trusting that he's accepted us in Christ. By faith, we believe that Christ is all we need to walk in this world. That's why he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Those great works that once people looked at, they don't mean anything. Once you got Christ, they don't mean anything. So by the Spirit, we live by faith. But notice how we live by faith. We are waiting eagerly for this hope of righteousness. What does this mean? You know, we use the word hope in English for a wish, right? I hope it snows. I hope it. Hope the team wins. I hope I get healthier. Whatever the hope is. The Bible does not use hope that way. The Bible uses hope as a confident assurance. So when he says we're eagerly waiting, here's how we live. We live in the power of the Spirit. We live by faith, and we live by faith waiting for this hope of righteousness. What's that mean? I think it looks to a future day, a final day, where God will declare publicly before the cosmos, you are his. You're forgiven. You're his forever. I think that exists right now. I think for the Christian, we are forgiven. We're adopted right now. But there'll be a public declaration, hope of righteousness. We will be declared right. There's a final day coming when you stand before God that a public declaration will be made. He, she is mine. They are forgiven. They're mine. They've always been mine. I saved them. They're mine. That day is coming. A future vindication of all those who claim Christ, that they are mine forever. They've always been mine. It's publicly declared before the world. You can be maligned. You can be lied about. You can be thought poorly over. One day that verdict will be rendered among the cosmos <clears throat> and that's the day that we're eagerly waiting for. So he says, when you live this life now, do you see what it does? We live by the power of the Spirit, by faith, and we're living 
eagerly waiting this hope of righteousness. But it, it's not so, remember now, it's not just stargazing here, because look what he says at the end of verse 6. He says this faith is working itself out through love. Love is not another work that we add to the salvation process. Love is the fruit of those who've been changed by the Spirit, who walk by faith hoping for this righteousness. In other words, that, that sacrificial love, think about it for a minute. If you know that your final day is a certain, assured vindication, all things made right, all truth declared, you confirm to be a child of God. It gives us incredible freedom today. If you're misunderstood, if you're maligned, you can give yourself to people in incredible ways. Now, I'm not going to tease this out totally because verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter is what explains what this love looks like. But, but let me just kind of whet your appetite. Look at 13 if your Bibles are open. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's what I've been saying. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul's saying is, brothers and sisters, you are free. For those of you in Christ, you are free from guilt, from sin, from shame, from fear of death, from fear of God's judgment. You're free. You're free. Now, don't lose that freedom. Don't get wrapped up in good things and add them to the work of Christ. Christ is sufficient. He won't be of any advantage to you, and you'll be severed from him. No, 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 rather walk in the freedom. And walk in the freedom by walking in the power of the Spirit, by faith, looking for that day of righteousness, but giving yourselves to one another, loving one another, serving one another, sacrificially extending yourself for one another. That's how we're called. That is how the world will see that we are Spirit-filled people, is they love each other as different as we are, our experiences, our backgrounds, our histories, our likes, our dislikes. It's different as we are, yet they still love each other. I mean, Blair preached on this a couple weeks back, right? All men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's what the people of God do. So where is your hope? I mean, even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, when you think about your own future, what do you think? When you think about that final day, that final verse, what is it going to be? Are you nervous about it? Because here's the deal. If you want to live with faith in Christ, and with the things that you're doing, you're going to be nervous. You're going to be anxious because you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've performed, or if you have a bad week and then you die. That's always the fear I used to have. You have a bad week and boom, you'd, I'd rather die like after a good week. But the, neither week matters. Circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. If you have Christ, you have everything. You have reconciliation with God. So, so where's your hope? And, and if you are a religious person and you have not come to this faith in Christ, then where is your hope? Do you hope the scales tilt in your favor? He says there are none righteous, no, not one. Your throats are open graves. He's already told you the answer. If you're asking, I hope my scale tilts to the good, let me be the bearer of good news that may sound bad, it's going to tilt the other way. But for the Christian, your hope is different. 
a, a people who are free in Christ will display the glory of Christ. A people who are nervous before Christ won't do that. They'll, they'll show uncertainty and fear. And Paul's saying, stand firm in this freedom. Don't let the threat of legalism crowd out the beauty of the gospel. Now walk in this freedom and let the freedom have its perfect fruit in the way that we love each other. Now I'm going to leave it at that because next week we'll dive into what does it mean to live by the Spirit and you'll see a further explanation of love. But for today, let's just ask God in these few moments after the sermon, let's just ask God for grace to, to walk in this freedom, to understand this freedom to be introspective about the legalism, perhaps in our own lives. Maybe you'd be so bold to ask somebody to, to look at your life and to give you their opinion as to how you're resting in Christ. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.